is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. This show is about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great content and free products and books that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at our AOC Live programs here in LA, check out the Art of Charm toolbox at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got fundamentals like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating, attraction, business networking and negotiation, relationship management, breakups, all the stuff we wish we'd learned and mastered years ago. And we've got our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. Details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Give us a call in the office or just email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I do read everything and I'm looking forward to meeting all of you here at The Art of Charm. Today we're talking with my friend Adam Brown. He's the founder of something called Pencils of Promise. It's a charity that helps build schools in developing world countries. I don't think third world is PC anymore. Today we're gonna talk about his obsession with Wall Street, how playing basketball and a near-death experience led him to a cause that is now changing the world, how to start small and build something bigger, of course, creating an organization that outlasts your personal brand, and the three forms of compensation, money and dot, 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 whatever you'll see on the show, This is an inspiring one, so enjoy this one with Adam Brown. So, Adam, you've got a lot going on. I mean, you're a best-selling author, you founded a charity, you used to work for a hedge fund, you played Division I basketball, but all these things come together, as these things do, and you've done a lot for, how old are you right now? Sure, no, I'm 31. 31, so you're 31, you've done a ton, more than most folks, but I'd love to hear your backstory, and then we'll, that'll sort of lead into why what you're doing now, how it came about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I was born in New York City, obviously I have no recollection of it as, as a baby, but uh, my parents, pretty quickly, when I was around three, maybe four years old, moved out to the suburbs, and uh, the town that they decided to move to was the one with the best public education system. Uh, my dad was a dentist. My mom was an orthodontist. And so they really just sought out uh, the best public schools that they could find because, um, you know, education was a big priority in my household. And I ended up moving out to the the suburbs in Connecticut. And uh, while I was there, I learned at a pretty early age about the economic disparity that exists certainly in this country because I was a basketball player. And so okay. some of my teammates were you know, living in the projects uh, in some pretty rough towns surrounding us or in New York City. And then um, some of my friends lived in enormous mansions in backcountry Greenwich, where I was growing up. And so I, I saw the difference. And, you know, just kind of a, a young, naive kid, I was like, well, how do I get one of the big houses? And I started to ask some of my um, my friends' parents what they did that lived in the biggest houses. And uh, time and time again, I, I kept on hearing that they worked on this thing called Wall Street. And so uh, I started to just learn more about it. And by the time I was about 13, I was I was pretty obsessed with just making as much money as I could because I thought that that would lead to happiness in life. So I uh, opened up an E-Trade account. I started doing some little trades. And when I was 16, I I worked for the summer at a hedge fund. When I was 19, I helped launch a fund of funds with a fund manager. And by the time I was kind of 20, I was 
you know, at the intersection of the place that I, I thought I always wanted to get to, which was playing college basketball. So I was at Brown playing ball and then studying, amongst other things, economics and, and hoping to build a career on Wall Street. And then I went on a program called Semester at Sea, uh, my junior year in college. Do you want to explain a little bit about what that is? Because speaking of things rich people do, <laughs> that ranks up there, not not trying to throw you under the bus and, and out you as a suburbanite, well, or you know, not, or a city kid, but a lot of people don't know what that is. I looked into it and my parents went, I don't think so. Got it. So, so Semester at Sea is um, a study abroad program. Uh, most people do it either their sophomore or their junior year, but you can do it at any point in your college experience. And it's literally a thousand person cruise ship with 700 plus students and um, professors and administrators from uh, a bunch of schools, all tenured professors. And it's essentially a floating campus. Um, and so you have uh, about 200 plus universities represented between students and faculty. And uh, you literally circumnavigate the world. So you, you spend uh, about a, around 100 days going around the world and you stop in usually about 10 different countries. Uh, the voyage changes every um, semester a little bit. Uh, you go through 10 different countries and you have four to six days to get out and just freely backpack. So they literally kind of pull into a port on, let's say, Friday night on uh, a Saturday morning, you um, disembark. And you're told, hey, uh, Thursday at 6 p.m., the ship is leaving. So you have to be back on it by then or else we're, we're leaving you behind. Um, and then you just have total freedom. But your classes tend to be taught around the countries you're going to. And then your assignments are usually related to experiences in country. That is badass. Oh, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's really amazing. I had never heard about it until a friend of mine went on it um, my sophomore year and came back. It was just a totally different person. And so she got me really interested. I saw a film called Baraka that was shot in 20 plus countries, mainly the developing world. And I, I just wanted to see the places with my own eyes and India in particular, because there was a really powerful scene in, in this documentary style movie that was shot in India. And so I go on semester at sea and was expecting, you know, this study abroad experience that was going to broaden my horizons and change my outlook on life. Right. And we left from Vancouver headed towards South Korea. That was the South Korea was going to be the first stop. Busan or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we, uh, unfortunately, this is January of 2005, we got caught in between three storm fronts, three big fronts that developed. And we, we got caught essentially in, in the midst of like a superstorm about 800 miles from land. And, and maybe you or some of your listeners might uh, remember hearing or seeing this on the news in early 2005, because it was covered by pretty much every outlet. But my ship was struck by a 60 foot rogue wave about 800 miles from land you know, several days away from any ship or any real type of help. And we we're in about 40 foot swells, but the, the 60 footer went over the top of the ship, it shattered the glass on the bridge and it flooded the area with our navigational equipment and the power to our engines. And so we lost all power. Wow. Scary. At least you were still in a floating object though. That look on the bright side. Correct. Correct. Um, but we had been told, you know, just wait in your rooms and put on your uh, life jackets. And it was kind of still playful. And then the whole ship shook, which was, you know, later I learned the wave. But then this panic announcement came over loudspeaker that I'll never forget where the guy just had so much terror in his voice. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, get to the fifth floor or higher, stay out of the elevators, uh, help the women and children up the stairs and get to your muster stations as soon as you can. And you're like, I remember that from like the first day, the muster thing. Like, It's like the, the fire drill you did in elementary school where you're like, yeah, we like 100%. walk down the hall and walk outside and then we like sit in the sun and we go back in and pee. Exactly. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're not paying any attention. You're, you know, the second 
you're the second day of orientation and, you know, junior year in college. So you're kind of like checking out the people around you. You're of course. trying not to look stupid and in a life jacket in the middle of the day. So when they made this panic announcement, get to your muster stations, it was like, it was recognition that the ship was going to go down. When you looked outside, there's 40 foot swells and it's January. So it's freezing cold waters in North Pacific, 800 miles from land. Oh man. It was a certain death experience. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It wasn't, when the announcement came, I wasn't thinking, oh, and this might be bad. It was like, I'm dying in the next two hours based on what this person just told oh, me. Oh, man. So pretty horrifying, but obviously we survived. Yeah. So far, so good. Yeah. Yeah. In, in those minutes afterwards, um, just something kind of came over me, like a total calm, a total stillness. And, and I just knew it wasn't my time that I thought the ship was going to go down. I thought everyone was going down with it. But um, it just didn't make sense to me that, that my life purpose would have been to perish at sea as a 21-year-old. Right. And so I actually changed into swimming gear because I figured the ship was going down. And I was I was going to be like floating for days in the water until someone rescued me. You'd be an ice cube, but you might as well have a bathing suit on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, coming out of something like that, it just forces you to reprioritize everything. Uh, when you're sure that your life is going to perish in the next few hours, and then suddenly you have this feeling of, no, I, I have some reason for being here. It makes you want to explore what that reason is. And so I ended up in the subsequent weeks and months as I would travel. It's my first time ever in the developing world. If you've never been in those types of environments, you just can't fathom the levels of, of poverty, but also the levels of dignity and joy that are often found in, you know, very kind of small, simple pleasures. And so I became obsessed with traveling, became obsessed with backpacking. And I had a habit of asking one child in each country that I went through the same question. And I would always ask, what do you want most in the world? And I have them write it down on a piece of paper. It's just kind of like a, a project that I was interested in doing. And I figured I would hear these big loft answers that I wanted as a kid, you know, a, a big house, a mansion, or, you know, a cool car. And when I got to India, where I was most drawn to, I found a street beggar. And when I asked him if he could have anything in the world, his answer was a pencil. And so I gave him my pencil. This kid just lit up. And at that point, I realized that he had probably never been to school before. That was the reality for him and a lot of others. And from that point forward, just been super, super motivated and committed to trying to use my life as an instrument to try and bring as much positivity as I can. And, and the most powerful way through which I think that can be achieved is uh, greater access to education. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, all joking aside, that makes me want to cry a little that the kid wanted a pencil because... I don't know about you. My association with pencils is negative, actually, uh, because I didn't love school so much, and I, right. I'm left-handed, so they were I always got the <laughs> stuff on my hand. But I mean, yeah, just to to be able to give somebody something so simple that we don't value at all, like you would right. give that to a stranger, you would give a whole box of pencils to a stranger and not exactly. care. You wouldn't even think about it, and that was his greatest yeah. wish at whatever age. He was because he was homeless on the street and, yeah, had never been to school. And now, fast forward a little bit, you've got 250 schools around the world. We'll talk about that in a bit. Recently, you were named one of the top 40 under 40 from Business Insider. Wired writes about you and 50 people are changing the world. I mean, no big deal, right? I mean, that's awesome. And there's all kinds of stuff. You've even spoken at the White House, United Nations, et cetera. And so... You know, did you end up on Wall Street or were you like, you know what, I'm starting this right now? I mean, what happened between giving the pencil to the kid on the street and, and where you are now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when people look at my story, there's kind of this uh, approach to condense it and say, oh, yeah, he gave his kid a pencil and they just started this organization. But the yeah. reality is, you know, there were years and years of kind of preparation and just acknowledgement that I needed to 
learn the craft that would ultimately enable myself or an organization that I had started to become successful in that environment. And so the first thing was I was obsessed with backpacking. I just loved it. And so I'd always started small businesses. I, I began a basketball camp that became a pretty big camp in my county. And that enabled me to make the small amounts of money that I could then go travel with. So I ended up backpacking through more than 50, 60 countries by the time I was in my mid-20s. And my parents just had a simple approach, which was, we'll support you, just not financially. So if you want to go do something, go for it, but it's all on you and your own dime. Mm -hmm. So it forced me to you know, kind of gain familiarity with how to start a business, how to manage staff, how to get something off the ground, the sales and marketing, the, the infrastructure. And I, I spent basically a year after college as a backpacker traveling to the most rural parts of the developing world that I could. And often as I would travel, I would try and meet with different NGOs and, and great organizations that were doing good work in the field and you know, learn from their leadership and their founders. I came back. And even at that time, my thinking was, I don't really like asking people for money. So well, let me try and become very, very wealthy myself. And then, you know, in my 40s or 50s, use as much of my money as I could and try and uh, galvanize others in my, you know, peer network to support whatever initiative I put forward around global education. And so I came back, I went through interviews at the top five investment banks, the top five consulting firms, because that's the path that I was on. And I ended up getting two job offers that I was uh, really heavily considering. One of them was at the, the number two investment bank in the country at the time. And the, the other one was at one of the top consulting firms, which was Bain. But the investment banking job was actually for a fair amount more money, like around 50 grand, which was a ton to me coming out of college. Right. Yeah. I thought I wanted to take it, but one mentor gave me really good advice. And he was like, look, Adam, I know that seems like a lot of money right now. And the truth is there is a time and place in your life to go with uh, one position over another that provides you with greater money. But your first job or your first few jobs out of college, what really matters is the learnings. So go with whichever job you think is going to better train you and teach you to become the professional that you want to be down the line. And I'd looked at what I wanted to do, which was to start a global education organization. I felt like Bain as a management consultant would better train me. And you can oftentimes go from Bain to either Bain Capital or Blackstone or one of these premier private equity firms. And so I thought, let me go work at Bain. So I went to work at Bain in New York and I was at Bain for a few years and I got the itch um, just before my 25th birthday because I felt like, and I, I think this happens with a lot of people, like you kind of, you self-sacrifice so that you can get to your kind of dream position one day, but then you just end up going so far in this other path that you can never get back to what that dream was. Do, do you know what I'm referring to by that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, can you clarify that a little bit? Because I do, because I've been in, in that situation, but I think there's a lot of people looking for this sure. in it and that they're so in it right now. I mean, think about how you were in the moment. You were like, huh, what is, yeah. what's going to happen? It's like when I started this company, I never thought this is going to be this thing that I do and it's going to work. I was like, right. this is a fun thing I could yeah. maybe work on for a minute. And now it's like my whole life, right? Right. I mean, I think that you know, oftentimes people will say to themselves, okay, well, here's what my dream job or my dream life looks like. But the truth is for me to get there, I need to first take on this other role that's going to kind of train me. And then one day, once I have success in that area, I'll kind of forego all of my successes for this other thing that's actually my passion. And what I find is that especially as people age and they take on more responsibility and income becomes, you know, a much bigger factor in their life, they suddenly feel trapped, like, and it's not to knock the legal profession at all, but I see a lot of people that go to law school go through this, where it's like, well, I don't really know what I want to do with my life, so I'm going to go to law school, because that'll help me progress. And they go to law school, and they come out with a bunch of debt, 
And so then they go into some version of, I don't know, corporate law or something like that, where they make good money. But the reason that they went into that law school experience in the first place is like they had some desire to be in public service, let's say, or they, you know, they wanted to be a politician or they wanted to, you know, create better outcomes for their local community. And law school seemed like it was going to give them the right skill set. But 10 years down the line, they're like still paying down their student debt or now they're making several, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And they're like, well, I hate my job, but I can't go over and now work on that thing. I actually started this whole path to one day enable. And I was really worried about that two years into my job at Bain. I was like, well, I'm making good money. And now I have huge job offers at private equity firms. But I took this job because I wanted to one day start an organization. And if I don't find some way, some thread to the person I want to be one day that holds me accountable to it, then I might lose myself in this other direction. And so my way of ensuring that I was somehow tied to the person that I hope to one day become was by starting small and just saying, okay, look, I'm just going to build one school. I'm going to start an organization with very kind of meager means. I started with literally $25 and I'll ask my friends to give donations instead of birthday presents. And maybe we can all scrape together 25 grand or so. I can build one school and I can stay on this financial path. But once a year, I'll go, I'll build a school. And when I'm in like my fifties, you know, maybe I'll have built 10 or 20 schools and then I'll just go and do this thing full time once I'm kind of financially more stable. Right. Mm-hmm. And that that was the initial ambition for Pencils of Promise. And it was like to get back a little bit of that sense of purpose that I felt while backpacking. And I'd been trained really, really well at Bain. And I felt like one of the biggest things that's missing in the nonprofit space is the sense of for-profit business acumen that you see from great business leaders. And nonprofits yes. aren't held accountable to that because people feel like, oh, well, it's charity. So if I just make a donation to a charitable organization, I've somehow, I feel good about it and I've made the world better. But the reality is if you donate to an organization that just sends you like pretty pictures of kids, but doesn't actually produce results, nor do you ask them to demonstrate the results, then sometimes you can actually have negative effects on those communities you're trying to help. Really? How would that work? Because, you know, I sponsor this girl who's now going to school and has like a dentist because of me and she writes me letters and stuff in Spanish. And it's cool, but I'm also like, I'm mixed because I know that charities need to sell and upsell. And like every month I get like, hey, if you give us 25 more dollars, she can get a pair of shoes. And I'm like, yo, I give you guys thousands of dollars. You can't buy Uh a pair of shoes. Like those things are handmade by other people in her village. What kind of shoes are we talking about here? So I'm always curious. It's like, what results are you getting? She looks healthy in the photographs, but is that because of me or is it because that's how every kid in her village looks regardless of whether or not they're getting a stipend? I don't know. Right. Well, I mean, that's where I feel like the onus of responsibility is on the charity as well as the donor to say, I want to actually have these questions answered. What I mean by these adverse effects, and you see it happen all the time, and it's, it's certainly not intentional, but a lot of times people with very good intentions come in, they try to enable something really positive, but it ends up hurting the community or the population that they're trying to support. And so one example would be there's a, essentially an intervention that occurred in, I believe it was in West Africa where women were not making much money in these communities. And so uh, an organization came in and it provided job training. And um, I think it was microfinance as well. And it was like this kind of holistic approach to supporting these women to make more money. And what they saw was that, that the women started to make a little bit more money. But because of that, the men in the community started to get very resentful. And because they were the leaders of the household and there wasn't a lot of kind of support and governance around how this increase of money would start to be used, the men not only took all the money, but they started to spend it heavily on alcohol and they became resentful of these women and instances of physical and domestic abuse like skyrocketed. Wow. 
and, and so you can see how like the yeah. best of intentions will try and do something really positive, but it leads to actually these women now uh, like potentially beaten by their husbands and not actually controlling that, that additionally. And, and it's not to say the organization was wrong, but, but these types of things happen a lot where people come in with the best of intentions and end up producing adverse, adverse results. So how do you know the kids aren't stabbing each other with those pencils? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, again, I mean, well, part of that is we're in every community and we're from quarterly to three times a month and we're in close contact with the teachers as yeah, well I'd as assume the, the village leadership. I assume yeah. you figured out how to solve the problem of yeah, making sure yeah. the schools actually get built and everything. Yeah. But back to the where a lot of this started, I believed in creating an organization that would bring in some of the accountability and the transparency and just like the efficiency and commitment to results above all else that the for-profit sector has and bringing that approach into the nonprofit space. And so so that led to the starting of Pencils of Promise. And what happened was by the time that the first school was built, and I, I took a nine-month leave from Bain and personally went out to Laos for a long time, just kind of me in a motorbike in a backpack and started to develop relationships and Great. eventually staff and everything else. And by the time I got back to Bain, I just <laughs> I wasn't as committed to the clients that yeah. they were signing to me because we had a second school and a third school. And so I left in March of 2010. I can imagine going back to a management consulting role and they're like, hey, hope your trip abroad with all this meaningful, life-changing stuff with people being grateful for like this, almost like a tiny little thing causing massive life change in whole communities of people after all that life-changing stuff. And then I can just imagine you get back and it's like, oh, we've got a couple of clients who need the prospectus reformatted so it's more visually appealing or whatever. And you're like, this is a waste of human potential. I'm over it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to knock bank because they were great to me while I was there. They've continued to be great. And I used to work on Wall Street too, and it's, it's not Bain. It's just shuffling right, right. papers and checking yeah. for commas and documents. You just start to go, yeah. is this yeah. it? Really? Yeah. yeah, I mean, there was also just a sense like I, I was kind of living that purpose that I had sought out originally. And why would I do anything other than this? So they kind of gave me an ultimatum, like you got to choose because you're not really working very hard on these clients that we're signing you to. You seem to be working on Pencil Promise all the time. And so I ended up uh, leaving March 2010. I think we, I mean, we had no office, nothing. And then things just started to grow and compound. And now here we are rapidly approaching 300 schools globally, more than 30,000 students and almost 100 global staff. Good for you. I mean, that's really cool. My friend Nick is super into it. Nick Onkin, who we know yep. mutually. Yep. And so many people are into this charity. And I, you've done... Seldom do you see a charity that just rips through all of the influencers and the social media and it's just everywhere. And that's exactly, I'm guessing, what you meant by business acumen and the accountability stuff, of course, but also just putting business acumen into a charity. Because a lot of times you just get these sort of half-assed, here's some address labels, cut yeah. us a check, and you're like, yeah. eh, no. But when you look at Pencils of Promise and the campaign that you guys ran a few years back, and the, one of the reasons I waited to have you on the show was because mm. it was just so everywhere that if you didn't know about Pencils of Promise, it was like you had your head buried so deep in the sand. You were <laughs> yeah. you, you were one of those guys who lived in like a, an old oil tank in the middle of the desert with no internet and no phone, right? Right, right, right. It was just right. everybody was talking about it. Even, and this was like 2010 or 11, I yeah. want to say. It was yeah. just everywhere. I mean, friggin' Justin Bieber was talking about it, I want to say. It was just everywhere. Yeah. And so you brought that in there. And I remember thinking at the time, how come other charities never do this? They have like one celebrity who's like, support this cause, and then it's kind of like a, a peaks, and then it dies, and then that's it, and it makes a little bit of a wave. But yours was kind of like full-on tsunami of PR. It was just really well done. Yeah. It wasn't annoying either. Right. I mean, we didn't spend 
any money on it either, to the best of my knowledge. It was partly driven by, I think, us being early adopters of social media. So I was Mark Zuckerberg's year in college, and he was at Harvard when I was at Brown. So myself and my, my friends, our peer set, our staff, like we kind of grew up in the age of social media's rise. And so we were one of the first organizations to really get on early and then engage people as a meaningful outlet. Because, you know, most other organizations, they take the traditional approach that, truthfully, you, you were referencing before. Like, mm-hmm. hey, sponsor a child. We're going to oftentimes kind of guilt you into seeing images of kids in bad situations. And then we're going to give you an opportunity to lift them out of that. But they often do that through direct mail. Like, you know, you get an envelope and then check off the box and put in your handwritten check. And I just felt like this generation of millennials, at least that I was coming of age with, we were going to want to operate with really optimistic brands with, you know, kind of positive portrayals of people, even if they were in poverty and, you know, demonstrating wins rather than losses. Uh, and that you could actually convince somebody that their status could be a meaningful donation. So in the first, you know, to 2010, when I started doing it full time, 2011, even 2012, I mean, we didn't focus on fundraising. We focused on building a community. And my belief was that if that community became large enough and engaged enough, that the fundraising would almost come naturally mm-hmm. because these people would feel such an affinity for the cause and we'd be able to get big brands and big foundations involved because we would have the kind of eyes and ears of the people that they wanted to talk to. Right. Making a charity kind of cool yeah. is tricky also, right? Right, right. I mean, this is why I wrote my book. The book called The Promise of a Pencil is actually relevant because of the subtitle, which is how an ordinary person can create extraordinary change. And it's, it's framed around 30 very simple mantras And these mantras are just the guiding steps that you would take to create a life of both success and significance, because I really don't think that you should strive for one over the other. In our modern society, you can actually have both. And it starts with, you know, finding your sense of purpose through getting out of your comfort zone oftentimes. But, you know, when you look at kind of the long tail growth and impact, you have to make it something that others can become the storytellers on behalf of. Like nothing really grows or scales because of one individual alone. It's always about enabling other people to then become the storyteller. And to your point, a couple of minutes ago, like, you know, Nick Onkin probably introduced you to the organization, but that was because Nick came with me on the ground, developed a real strong connection to the work. And then he's become this incredible storyteller. And now by virtue of this podcast, you know, you are going to be able to become the next kind of torchbearer. And then someone that's listening to this is probably going to go out and either pick up the book or tell, you know, go to pencilsofpromise.org. And they're going to become the next storyteller. And and when you kind of look at that compounding over a long period of time, you can create a, a pretty tremendous impact from one person to another. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and you're right. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that thing. You want to connect me to that guy? Oh, yeah, sure. No problem. You know, with Nick. And it's like influencers, they stay influential for long periods of time if they're actually influencers and not just flash in the pan, 15 minute sort of celebrities that are hot for a sec, right? And so it makes total sense to have gone that route. Now, what about starting something small and building it bigger? I mean, you definitely, you started out with 25 bucks, right? And then suddenly now it's this massive international organization with tons of teams on the ground, schools all over. How many schools do you have? 250? Today, so we break ground on a new school about every 90 hours. So as of today, I think there's 272. Every 90 hours? Yeah. Really? 90 hours? Yeah, <laughs> I've never heard anybody measure like that. I mean, that's so it's literally like every four days ish. Yeah, correct. Wow, that's incredible. And so how many how many people are working on that? I mean, it seems like a massive undertaking to open a school and you're doing it yeah. multiple times per week. 
Yeah. So, so part of the idea behind the organization is that um, education doesn't work through charity. Uh, it can't be perceived as a handout. The person who is gaining the education has to want it themselves. They have to strive for it. It's, it's not like health where like I can inject somebody with a vaccine and suddenly they're better. You can inject somebody with education. They have to work for it. And so when we think about creating our schools, uh, we require a 20% co-investment from the community themselves. So they have to put up 20% of the funding for every school that we create. Otherwise, we won't work there. But these are people that oftentimes live on less than $2 a day, so they don't have the money. And the way that they make up that 20% is by collecting the um, materials. So it's like scrap wood or gravel or um, rhubarb or cement or something like that. But most of it actually comes in the form of labor. And so what ends up happening is the mothers and the fathers and the elders and the village leadership, sometimes older siblings, they are the ones who physically build the school for the community. That's how they make up their 20% contribution. Ah. And so when we think about, all right, you know, 250 plus schools, how many people have been a part of it? I mean, I don't know the exact number in terms of how many have, have volunteered on that labor construction side, but it's, I would guess, you know, tens of thousands. But our actual full-time staff is closer to 100. Wow. Okay. So it's massive now. Really? Oh, yeah. You can imagine. I mean, if you're building a five structure room or I mean, I've seen it with my own eyes. You know, I walk into a village in, in rural Ghana and it, there's 200 people working away on a five classroom school. And it's, you know, all of the parents and, and family members and those are on rotations. So you can have several hundred people that are actually building one school, but they are not paid by Pencil of Promise, nor are they on our staff. We've just created a model where they are incentivized and almost required to put up that level of work to enable a better education opportunity for their child. And, you know, you can just picture it. If you're a parent and suddenly someone shows up and just puts a nice school in your community, you'd be like, okay, well, great. That's a good opportunity for my kid. But if you spent three months busting your butt and, you know, you're sweating every single day and you're, instead of being in the field, you're laying down bricks. By the time that school opens, you're going to feel so much pride around it and you're going to ensure that it's your, that's your school, right? Exactly. There. Now, back to the show. Yeah. Yeah, so we think about it, you know, when people say, oh, are they your schools? The answer is no, they're the village's school, and they're overseen by the education ministry, which we have very close partnerships with. But Pencils of Promise is the catalyst that has enabled it and covered the majority of the capital costs. How much does it cost to build a school on average, let's say, in Central America, South America? Yeah, so, so our schools are on average $25,000. That's not bad at all, considering that schools in America that aren't even good are like millions of dollars, right? Right, right. So, so that's always been our accessible price point. Anyone that funds or fundraises 25K uh, to build a school, one, they get the opportunity to dedicate it to a, a loved one or Hell to yeah. themselves, their company. So, you know, the first school is dedicated to my, my grandmother's. And that's like, you know, part of the reason that I did it. I, I wanted to ensure that their legacy would carry forward for generations. And there's so many people, it's like, you know, my parents were educators. I want to dedicate this to my mother, my father, my, my uncle sacrificed so much for my well-being. I want to, you know, surprise him by letting him know that there's a school out there built in his name, dedicated to him that will stand for, you know, educating several kids or um, several generations or thousands of kids. But that's one thing. Anyone that raises 25K gets a dedication opportunity. But then secondly, we don't do like volunteer trips. You know, we don't do short term like placements, but anyone that funds or fundraises the 25K gets invited on what we call an impact trip. And that's our team taking them into the field to see the impact firsthand. Uh, they get to know our staff. And most importantly, they get to know the communities uh, whose lives they've changed. If people want to go on a trip, 
the way is to fund or fundraise for a school. And it is completely life changing. We've had so many people do it. I mean, you know, we've had 13 year olds raise 25K. We've had companies. We've had actually a lot of podcasters do it as well by uh, putting up some of their own funds and then having matching funds come from their community as just a call to action. Hint, hint, right? I got you. I got you. Ahead, I planned ahead. <laughs> right. It's such a small enough amount of money that is something we could easily fundraise. I just need more than 12 seconds of notice. No, on, I mean, to tell you the truth, almost every single person who has fundraised towards the school, they just learn about it and then they think about it, they go home and then they reach out to myself or someone on our staff like a month later. And then we plan to do it a year down the line. I mean, it takes a lot of preparation. And yeah. not just I'm not just saying this for you, but if there's anyone out there that's listening to this and in their you know, hard parts feels like I can do this, I want to do this, um, my email is adam at uh, just the letter I promise.org. I give it out very freely. Just email me at adam at I promise.org and just let me know you're interested. And myself and our team will, will work with really anybody out there. And we have uh, almost like a customized version of, of, you can think about it like a Kickstarter on our website and thousands of people have gone on there and launched campaigns. And, you know, some people, they try and raise $200 and that's a huge win. And for some people, they try and raise, you know, $50,000 and build two schools. So there's no right or wrong amount, but you know, as long as uh, you're interested, just uh, anyone out there can shoot me an email, Adam and I promise.org and I'm happy to work with. Yeah. You. This is, some, I mean, that amount of money would be so easy. I, I could sell two ad campaigns to small companies and you'd have a school next week. You, you probably know Pat Flynn over at uh, Smart yeah, Passive Income Pass. So Pat and I actually did a just a podcast, you know, talking about my book when it was launched last year. And he followed up. He said, look, I, I really want to do this. I'm going to fund one and I'm going to match every dollar with my community. And he actually, within five days, fully funded two schools um, between himself and then his community. But it was the widest casting. I think it was like 24 different countries donated. He had hundreds of donations. And it was amazing to see just kind of how influential his kind of voice was within this community. And then to kind of bounce it uh, in the other direction, just how much this community loved supporting him. And he did that as a birthday thing. He was like, instead of my birthday gifts, I want you to help me build a school. So right. I see what you did there. The bar is high, but not that high. Two schools, you say. Hmm, okay. <laughs> um, well, Lewis, Lewis House does one a year, every yeah. year. Now he's like, this is his thing for yeah, sure. Yeah, he loves it. He's on our advisory board. He's, he's really involved. Now, what about, you've got a great personal brand, right? You've got a, a great, solid personal brand, but you need to create something within your organization that's going to outlast that, right? You've had totally. to think about that yeah. in the past because it's not something you can just be like, oh, okay, well, I'm checking out and uh, good luck, everybody, because that right. won't necessarily follow. This like, Speaking of something that has to be planned in advance, you did have to figure out how to build an organization that will outlast your personal brand. How did you go about doing that? First of all, I'm actually not the CEO of Pencils of Promise anymore. So the kind of beginnings of that process actually originated back in 2013, where uh, we were, I guess, around four-ish years old. The organization was starting to see really high growth. And I looked around the space, and I, I kind of looked at other founders of organizations that had strong personal brands. And it seemed like oftentimes those personal brands kind of overshadowed the organization. And oftentimes, if the individual didn't build an extraordinary infrastructure internally, and a really strong, empowered leadership team, that the organization was always kind of at this bottleneck between the founder or not. And so uh, I actually took a full sabbatical, uh, I stepped away entirely for three months in 2013. I didn't participate in a single phone call. 
no Skype calls, no nothing, not even the quarterly board meeting. And did a round-the-world trip for three months with just uh, myself, my fiance at the time, now wife, and each of us brought one backpack each. And I completely separated from the organization. And that was very much my design so that Pencils of Promise would feel like it was an organization that was not dependent on me or any other single individual for its well-being and livelihood. And it was probably one of the best things that I've ever done, not only just because it was enjoyable, but on behalf of the organization, because the leadership team really stepped up. The board felt a greater sense of ownership. And that was when I wrote my book as well during that set of travels. And so I came back and shared with the team that obviously a lot of them knew I was writing the manuscript for the book. And uh, we looked at my job and just said, look, uh, by title, I'm founder and CEO. But those have actually become two very different functions. And the founder is more of an ambassador, kind of uh, holder of the vision. But the CEO needs to be the day-to-day operator and lead. And that's not what I'm not only best at at this stage in the organization's trajectory, but it's not exactly what I, I love doing. I like starting things from kind of beginning and, and crafting them before they're really refined. And so we started a CEO search almost a year ago. And so I'm just the founder and a very active board member. And the organization is doing well. And the start of 2015, I took on, I mean, amazing role where uh, the UN Special Envoy for Global Education uh, is Gordon Brown, the former Prime Minister of England. And he's really the world's top person on achieving the world's education goals. And he and his wife, Sarah Brown, asked me to come on and work with them as the director of the Global Education Platform. Wow. Yeah. And so that's an initiative conceived by Gordon to leverage technology in service of uh, accelerating uh, learning for the world's most marginalized youth. And so I have two jobs now. I'm both uh, the founder of the organization, and then I'm the director of the Global Education Platform, which in some ways probably helps Pencils of Promise to be in a role like that. But the most important uh, element is that the, the organization is, is sustaining and growing and, and doing really well. Right. And that, that process began with me separating for three months, two years ago. And so I really encourage anyone else that feels like, hey, I have this thing, I've started it, but it's completely dependent on me. You have to find a time to completely separate from it and allow it to kind of grow up almost like, you know, with a child, like your kid goes away to sleepaway camp in the summer. They don't do it in, you know, when they're an infant, but when they're 12 or 13, it's good for them to be surrounded by some other people. And you're still going to be there as a parent to, to help guide it, but give it, you know, its own room to breathe and grow. Of course, yeah. And also, it's a good test to see, because if you bounce and they're like, the whole thing falls apart in a week, you know you got work to do. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And and the truth is, I mean, you know, some people did really well when I left and some people didn't. And it enabled us to identify who were some of the star performers, who were some of the people that weren't going to work out. And that was true, you know, not just from the staff, but from the board, from the advisory board. You know, the cream kind of rises to the top when, you know, if you think about like in a school, if the principal leaves for uh, a month, you'll see which teachers do really well and which teachers don't. And the same thing applies to great companies and organizations. Absolutely. Yeah. So d- let me ask you this. I mean, you came from finance, you had a, a lot of money coming in and the promise of a lot more. Do you ever think about the money? Do you miss it at all? Or is there a totally different form of compensation that you're receiving now? Well, one thing that's actually important to point out is I never made a lot of money. I mean, I was a junior guy uh, as a first and second year analyst at a firm that then was going to lead into big money. So when I left Bain, I was getting job offers. The The headhunters were calling for positions that were $250,000 in starting compensation. And I was 24. And I left that to work on an organization that I started with, $25. So I think through my 20s, there was really not a lot of thought put into, oh, I need to make X or Y because I was comfortable, you know, backpacking 
And if this thing failed, then I would just go back to you know that type of lifestyle. But the truth is, as I've aged and matured, now I'm married, I don't have kids, but I plan to at some point in the coming years. Money is definitely a, a lot more present part of my thinking. And I do a ton of public speaking now. And one of the things that I always share with people, it's just one of my most kind of um, foundational beliefs at this stage, is that there are really three forms of compensation. You know, we talk a lot about just money has come, but I genuinely believe there, there are three forms of compensation. One of them is, is money. One of them is mastery. Uh, the ability to learn and gain new new skills and and have new ideas that we we master, and then the third one is meaning. And you have to at various points in your life acknowledge that those three forms of compensation are relevant, and then weight them appropriately based on the stage of life that you're at. And so, you know, I always advocate to to younger people like your first decade out of school, just focus on mastery. Whatever allows you to gain the greatest amount of mastery will later in life provide you to command the most amount of money and derive the most amount of meaning from your work because you'll have autonomy, you'll have freedom, you'll have income. I think the kind of second stage, once you start to have a family and you think about probably having young kids, then money becomes more important. And then later in life, I think meaning is kind of all that matters. I've had a lot of our major donors say to me, look, Adam, I've, I've learned as much as I want in my career. I've made as much money as I need. Uh, right now, I just care about leaving a great legacy behind and you know, being an example for others to follow. And I, uh, you can help me derive more meaning by participation with Pencils of Promise. Perfect. So I try and think about it in the context of those three. And right now, I mean, I, I wouldn't say money is irrelevant to me, but it's, it's not the be all end all. I try and wait all three of them. Right now, I'm, I'm still heavy on mastery. I still just, I want to take on jobs that teach me as much as I can where the learning curve is as steep as possible. Because what I find is that when you throw yourself kind of in the deep end of the pool or, you know, set like a burning platform behind yourself and you're forced to learn a tremendous amount, mm -hmm. that accelerated growth period then allows you to be in a position where you make a lot more money in the subsequent years. Great. Thank you so much for your time, man. I mean, mastery is an important concept as well because I think if I had to do it all over again and people ask me this a lot, they're like, what would you do? You know, going to law school, traveling, all that stuff that I did, working for the law firm. I think I would probably forego higher education, just me personally. I would mm -hmm. forego higher education and I would try to get a job as an assistant to a high performer, regardless of what the pay was, just to get the habits and the mindsets, which exactly. you know, now I'm you know, still working on at age 34 after seven years of university that taught me how, to, how the skulls look of Australian <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about. And yeah, so, totally. So that mastery, I mean, you can start it early. You don't have to wait till you're 45 and you're seasoned in your career. In fact, you should seek it well before then. And in fact, as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, the reason I went to Bain, and I would encourage this to anybody else when thinking about what job to take or you know where to kind of make their next career move, is I just look for paid forms of, well, Bain was a paid form of business school. That's how I looked at it. I was like, everybody else goes to business school. They pay a lot of money. I'm going to take on a job that's going to pay me and train the crap out of me. And so, you know, whereas other people are like, oh, they're keeping me here on a Saturday night late. I mean, sure, that's not ideal, but they're paying us to then learn these things that everyone else has to pay out for. Right. And also, you'd still be working on Saturday night. You'd just be in a cafeteria instead of a really nice office with free food. Exactly. So, so I try and always picture like, what, where's the place I want to be? you know, successfully leading with an autonomous lifestyle where I'm kind of dictating my time because I'm an, by nature an entrepreneur. W where do I want to be confident that I can get to five years from now? And then probably before I take on that risk, what is the job that's going to teach me as much as possible? I mean, that's probably the biggest reason that I took on this role with the UN Special Envoy for Global Education is I wanted to take on a role that taught me everything possible. 
about the education space, informal parts of it, formal parts of it, how it works in the developing world, how it works on here. And I saw this job as an opportunity to go on a learning journey. And then hopefully that learning journey can prepare me for um, you know, creating a positive outcome in a space that I, I want to work within. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I, I love the fact that work experience should be looked at as education as, as opposed to looking at education as something you need to get before you get job experience, before you yeah. get the job that you want. It's a much more rewarding outlook and can accelerate the process greatly because a lot of people, they go to college and then it's like, get a job where I learn a lot, but make little money. I didn't go to college for that. And it's like, no, maybe you could have skipped around a little bit, taken yeah. the job for less money. And then it's like getting paid to go to college. And now who's complaining about that? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for your time, Adam. Pencilsofpromise.org. Obviously leave some money there and or save it for when I run a fundraiser. We're going to build a couple schools and you know, show Lewis Howes and Pat Flynn, who's boss in the fundraising department. Love it. I love um, it. Thanks so much, man. A lot of value here, especially, and glad you didn't uh, die Titanic style on that boat oh so long ago. Hey, me too. Me <laughs> I'm too. sure. I'm sure you're glad as well. Thanks again. So interesting as well to see how you've left a legacy of something or how you will be leaving a legacy. I suppose that legacy only happens after you're gone, but you've got a lot more in you. You're younger than me. Hopefully one of those listeners out there is hearing this and they're younger than both of us and, and this will catalyze something for them. You got it. Thanks so much. Great job. My pleasure. Such an inspiring guy. Kind of makes me feel like a little bit of a loser at age 34, not having done all those amazing things. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. Definitely a lot of takeaways here as well as the usual inspiration. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show is a fanarchy. It's run by you guys, the fans. We rely on you to keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone is a good fit for the show, let me know, Jordan at theartofcharm.com. And of course, if you enjoyed it, don't forget to thank Adam on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes. Bootcamp live program details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And if you're listening to this, but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, that needs to change. Get these shows delivered free to your phone, your tablet, whatever it is you use to listen, and you won't miss anything. Do that, subscribe right on our website or through iTunes. And of course, we have our iPhone and Android apps you can get. Those are free. They stream the show, etc. A lot of people like those if you're into apps. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. <laughs>